0: Hey folks, my name is Andy Sitto. I'm a Denver-based singer-songwriter, performer, producer, and composer. You're listening to Middle Class Rockstar Podcast. My guest today is NAMI-winning recording artist, Pouda Fé. All right, all right. We're getting into the 90s. We're quickly approaching that episode number 100. Who will the 100th episode be? I actually have no idea. I have no clue. But uh, quick thanks to our sponsors right up front here. Patrick at PQ Mastering. Patrick puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, visit www.pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. My guest today is uh, Pouda Fay. I was connected with her through Celeste Diorio at uh, Maple Street Music, and she also connected me with Ray Bonneville, who I had on a couple weeks ago. Um, Celeste has a lot of great things to say, um, especially for musicians who are just wondering about where to go next in their career. Grants And I I don't know, all all kinds of – she's a wealth of knowledge. And if you go back to uh, episode 18 of this podcast, you can listen to my conversation um, with her. So Pudafei was born in New York City and an heir to the Tuscarora Indian Nation. She came up on Broadway and uh, eventually started a group called Yulali – which is an internationally renowned Native woman's a cappella trio. They sort of created a new genre, um, bringing Native contemporary music to the mainstream music industry. As a group, they got to support lots of acts, including Robbie Robertson and the Indigo Girls. They actually made an album with Robbie Robertson and did some shows with him as well. Um, later on, uh, Pouda Fé began playing the lap guitar, which is a, uh, w- which is something that is a mainstay with her music now. Um, She's received a NAMI Award, a Native American Music Award for Best Female Artist for Follow Your Heart's Desire and also a Charles Cross Award, which is a French Grammy for Best World Album for Tuscarora Nation Blues. We had a little bit of audio trouble um, just... The, the connection and we eventually got it figured out and um, Patrick at PQ mastering was on the job helping make this uh, as, as clear as possible but we had a little audio troubles just to prepare you for that ahead of time and uh, but it was a wonderful conversation and it was great to uh, get to chat with her so without further ado let's jump into my conversation with Pouda Faye <music> Putefay thanks so much for joining me. Yes. Thank you. So you're you're coming to us from about 6 hours north of Saskatoon, is that correct? Yes. Yes. And I'm I'm looking at that on uh on a map right now. Yes. And that I mean that's pretty far north. Are you near any um are you near any cities or is there places for gigs or anything like that?
1: no I'm very far away (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually I have to fly it takes me two days to get to most of my gigs unless I do them in Canada and even within Canada I have a very long drive or a flight and so I usually drive take a day to drive to Saskatoon spend the night and yeah. then fly out in the morning to my destination.
0: So, and uh, what what brought you up to? Uh, what, what's the name of the what's the name of the town? It's a village called Beauval. Okay. So I'm on the tree line of the boreal forest. Yeah. So
1: we're in the bush, thick bush. So it's all hunter trapper um, country here. It's all little Indian villages, and lots of trees. It's beautiful.
0: Wow. And you've been up there for about six, seven years, is that right? Yes, six and a half years. So to to jump back a little bit, uh, you know, you were born in New York City and you come from eight generations of singers, including your mother who was an opera singer. Um, Talk about your musical upbringing a little bit.
1: Um, Well, so I was raised in New York. And um, my grandparents raised their daughters. They were all singers, like my grandmother and her mother and sisters and so forth. But um, there was always a lot of singing during the holiday seasons, specifically Christmas time, a lot of big Christmas caroling going on, and lots of family, extended family, and other grandparents of their daughters, um, kids and um everyone lots of north carolina roots um in our house and um so it started off like that my mom sang and her sisters sang with uh, the john motley choir and um that's uh back in the day it was an all-black choir and then through the years, John just opened it up to all people. Um, and then my mother ended up singing for the uh, Duke Ellington Sacred Concert Series, and she toured with Duke. I knew Duke. In fact, I lived in his house that was on uh, Riverside Drive. His, my mother and his sister Ruth Ellington became very close friends, and she's the one who introduced her to Duke, and asked, you know. So she ended up singing, for him, and the church that uh, my mom uh, was a part of, my my family, they're not religious, but for some reason, my grandmother brought her daughters to the Advent Lutheran Church, and um, the priest at that time was John Gensel, and he was a Puerto Rican guy raised by Pennsylvania Dutch, he was adopted. And he was into jazz, and so he ended up being known as the Jazz Minister. And so he had um, people like Miles Davis in his house and coming to his services, and Ola Tunji, and Billy Strayhorn, I mean, I could go on, the list is huge. Joe Newman, the trumpet player, and so, And we lived uptown, right in the area, the Upper West Side, where there was a lot of jazz musicians. So I even grew up with other kids that were like the sons and daughters of these well-known jazz musicians. So, I mean, my, that was my upbringing, was like that. And, um,
0: yeah. and so how old were you when you, you were living in, in Duke Ellington's house and your mom was doing the, uh, the Sacred Concert series with him?
1: Well, those are two very separate times. So, um, um, I mean, when my mom would sometimes go and rehearse over, he had a place on Riverside Drive on 106th Street. They even named that street after him, Duke Ellington Boulevard. But some mom would go over to that place. He had a huge brownstone, and his sister took it over. Mm. And so um, I was about... uh, Oh, it was before he passed away in 71. I think he died in the same year as my grandfather. I think I was like 11 or maybe just a touch older. No, around 11. So I don't remember what when she started, but I was a little girl. And sometimes I went on tour with her. But it was years later. Um, my stepfather and um, Ruth's ex-husband both <laughs> ended up needing a place to stay, so she gave them apartments in her brownstone. <laughs> wow. So my mom and Ruth would, like, laugh about that. Anyway, so um, so I would go and stay there a lot, but I remember being there as a kid, um, hanging out, and while mom would go visit Duke or, or Ruth. And um, so, yeah, so that was when I was more, like, in my teens, my early teens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you have an eclectic mix of music coming in as as a child, um, and and being being around the family and peers um, probably did a lot for you. And I mean, did you gravitate, you know, as a teenager towards one type of music at all, or were you taking in all kinds of different sounds?
1: I took in all kinds of sounds, you know, because even in my family. Um, like the younger, my younger aunties, my mom's younger sisters and, you know, Motown and the whole 50s, 60s type of I'm an old gal. Okay, I'm 62. So um, I grew up around hearing, you know, Earth Angel and, 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 you know, what's his name? Tommy James, na 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 na, the Crimson and Clover. I heard all of that, Frankie Valley and all the Motown, all of it. And uh, so that was my some of my beginnings of you know what was played in the house, and lots of Stevie Wonder. And I grew up also in the streets of Manhattan, and I grew up hanging out in several neighborhoods, and whether it was Chinatown or way uptown, or whether it was the urban Indian scene, so uh, being a part of the American Indian Community House. And so I also had a lot of um, powwow and, and Iroquois social dance music, and I was a part of so many worlds. And of course, you know, I'm half Puerto Rican, Mm-hmm. And, um, and in the streets where I grew up, there was tons of Latino people. And so I was also out there dancing salsa and going to see the final all-star. I mean, all yeah. of New York is a magnificent place. You yeah. can have it all, you know. And I did. I was very <laughs> curious. I was curious, George, in every way. So I definitely was in all the and the maxis kansas city i was a waitress when i was very young like 17. Mm. and so i was exposed to a lot of the early the punk scene and um so i um i was there and watched the whole blondie and all of that and all of them and grow devo i was a waitress when they were on stage and they first came and they were up there for fifteen, twenty minutes straight, going back and forth, saying, "Are we not men? We are Debo. It was just like, "Oh my God!" So it sounded very raw before the producer that came in and like developed all those groups. But yeah. so I was there for all of that.
0: And I, I know you're also uh, an heir to the Tuscarora Indian Nation, um, and and I, how much of that was. In your house as a kid, like those traditions.
1: Um. Well, you know, cornbread and collard greens. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was very, um, very much a part of the whole American Indian community house, the Indian Center, and then uh, later my familys to different. Members in my family became a part of their um, the center, you know, and uh, where they serve the Indian community, and whether it's with work or um, schooling. Back in those days, they had they had um, grants and so forth to help you, and. Um, you know, so I was a part of, you know, pretty much and since, like, my early teens, I really became a part of that and the powwow um, culture. And just being at the Indian Center was a very important part of my life. And that was pretty much all those years I was living in New York. And, uh, and my group formed out of there. Um, I mean, I was a professional singer. I grew up on Broadway, doing lots of Broadway shows and so forth, yeah. and, and going to a professional children's school, which my mother put me in. And, um, and so I did a lot of backup singing, and I ended up singing with the Duke Ellington Orchestra through his son, Mercer Ellington, when I was like 20, 21. Yeah. And then I gave birth, and then at that point, um, my music started to change um, and so with other artists at the Indian Center um, we came together and started with just one with Sonny and me and we started to put together because I at that time I had a band and I can't even remember the name of it but um, a lot of those musicians went on to do really great work and i ended up leaving the whole electric thing and just bringing all the songs down that i wrote down to a drum and so that's when the beginnings of uh my music started going into a totally its own genre and um, and then eventually my there were a lot of group members and we were called the Pudifay group then mm-hmm. and then when it broke down and so we started over and uh, we called ourselves um, Yulali and so we started working we did a, we we became that name when we recorded with Robbie Robertson on his Red Road Ensemble album yeah and um,
0: so. so- if if I if I can uh, interject on that, when Yula Lee formed, um, as, so how did this opportunity come about to record with Robbie Robertson?
1: He found us. I guess he was um, wanting to do a native album, and um, and uh, so he contacted us through the American Indian Community House and um so he found us and um he came to the center and um he just sat and talked with us said he wanted to create you know this album and he played us lots of stuff that he collected and um i realized well this is right up our alley because that's Kind of like what we do, sort of like um, mix match and all that and um, so next thing you know is we were in the studio, and he had us listen to all these drum tracks, and later on we found out that they were friends of ours' uh, it was Jeff Carpentier and um, Benito. Concha and Mazat. Anyway, they were the ones doing the um, all the rhythm drum tracks. And I listened to it. I said, Oh, my God, that's fits perfect with the song Macchi mm. that we wrote. And, um, and so that was that song went platinum in Italy. He never told us that, but we found out. It was just everywhere. You would turn on like a cable television show and there's this runway in Milan from a huge um, designer and these women are walking down the catwalk to Mach-Chi. Okay, so that song just went everywhere. Wow. And um, I always wanted to do a documentary showing how many places that song went and influenced and and it was one
0: of those songs but anyhow did you guys ever tour on the album together
1: yeah we toured with uh robbie we went to england and we went to italy we were in sicily i guess there's a there's you can go online it's uh it's online that concert in agrigento and um And we were in France, and we did this really strange show. It was in San Remo, and they left all the lights on in this really old, beautiful, decked out theater, it was like painted white with gold filigree and red velvet, I was just like, where are we? Anyway, we had to, because we were, um, we had to lip sync to our own music. And it was also a contest of all the people that were local but they had people like Duran Duran was there performing, (laughs) Sting was performing and we were all and Robbie Robertson in the Red Road Ensemble and Rita Coolidge was there with her sister and her niece so we were all there and that was like our tour and they also we also took uh, the American Indian Dance Theatre Company so we had a good time, and we had John Trudell and his group, um, Buffy St. Marie. We all traveled together and, um, yeah, for that album.
0: And how did that affect you, La Lee, after doing a record like that? I mean, did that propel you guys to doing your own tours um, and backing up some other artists and stuff?
1: Well yes. I mean that opened the door for many. Um a lot of the people that were on that album, you know, including Cashton, who are um Montagnier. they're from the more of the East Coast Cree up in Canada, them and a few others. So um yeah, right before that I think we were working with the Indigo girls and then came Robbie and so every every couple years another um another like big project came and that propelled us a lot because of the song Mach and it went on the TBS special and um and we started doing like soundtrack stuff and then um And our producer at the time, who was uh, David Beal, and he brought in Larry Mullen, because Larry loved our stuff, and he's the drummer from U2. And so he produced a a piece of ours that went into the... like the dance mixes of uh, Mission Impossible. So we were part of that. Wow. Um, We did a lot of stuff. I can't even remember right now, but we ended up, we just were collaborating everywhere. We were on the Juno Awards performing. Um, We were just everywhere. We were flying all over the place. And um, yeah, we did our European debut. That was way back. So, yeah, so we did a lot of collaborations and lots of gigs that we did in Indian country. We would end up being on the stage with this drum group, this peyote group, this, you know, we were, like, doing backups or and helping everyone um, uh, perform. We even performed with Exit. And, um, yeah, it was like that. We were, like... Yeah the Indian rock star girls with our little hand drums, you know, but but a lot of times we got treated badly. And they were like, you know, they'd look at us like, who are these girls with these drums, you know, and then we start to pound and then we'd start to sing and they'd be like, Oh, we had no idea that you had power, you know? So it was, we, we, we won a nice spot in Indian country for sure.
0: And you guys, the, the the trio of you was just only hand drums and vocals, correct? When you guys just performed, the three of you.
1: Yeah, mm. that's it: hand drums and uh, rattles and harmony. That's what we should have called ourselves:
0: <laughs> hand drums, rattles, and harmony. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> like bone thugs and harmony.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And were were you busy enough during this time with the group that that was a full-time thing, or did you have some other things you were doing on the side?
1: No, no. We were just full-time, full-time everywhere. Conferences, colleges, you know, concert halls, everything, and recording, and mm. when you name it. We were festivals galore. I remember my cousin said... She says, if I hear one more violin <laughs> from all the folk festivals, you know. So we were all over the place. We did a lot of Canadian folk festivals and, um, and in the States. So um, In the country, the whole music scene just started to mesh. And so we formed families, like long lasting, families with other groups Mm. and um and we're all old now you know and there's all this new stuff you know when we first began there was no uh bands or or different type of music at a powwow yeah we were the first to be a part of that opening yeah and And then it just like grew, and it was like it became this huge pimple on the side of the powwow. It was like, "Have you been into this room?" You know, (laughs) so so we we were part of that, Um, and we were also a part of the whole meshing of different um, nations, like from South America. And then all of a sudden, the Maoris started coming, and then you know, so it was like we were part of that, and we were also a part of. Because we were part of the American Indian Community House in New York City, we were also tied to all the the beginnings of the indigenous permanent Forums at the United Nations. We were a part of that from the first conversation at the round table. Wow. So we were a part of so many things that uh, that grew.
0: And you're talking about, uh, you know, what the impact you guys had on, on powwows. What exactly is can can you explain exactly what a powwow is what that what that gathering is like
1: well it's a social gathering and um the music out of powwow is based on on north northern and southern war dance drums mm. and that actually um was birthed out of when the buffalo west wild west shows came and they grabbed these people to put on these shows and they were um, singing their own songs from their drums. And so it was Northern and Southern Plains drum and their dances and so forth. And then, you know, they broke away and made their own um, like powwow culture, really. That's, that's how I understand it. And I know a lot of people's that had their parents or great-grandparents parent, great and so forth that were a part of the whole Buffalo Bill show, Wild West shows. And there were Indians from all over the place that joined to do this, you know, some even from the city. You know, this is an interesting point. There are a lot of Native people in the East that have, at that point, were totally assimilated and were not allowed to identify as Native. And, or their clothing or so forth. And when they joined this Wild West show, this was like the first time they were putting on regalia. and It may not have been regalia from their own tribe, but yeah. for them it was like... so. And, and another bitter thing is that a lot of those Native people were fresh from, from their nations being totally stripped and and killed and massacred and so forth and then the next thing you know they're like in this strange environment and touring and doing reenactments that whole thing needs to be filmed (laughs) it's, it's a
0: story out of this world so anyway and what what's your take on on the reenactments i don't know if
1: i even have words other than that what i just said it's just um i don't like them at all it's not the way to review right you know what what has happened i think to really look at what a reenactment is what why it happened and how it happened and yeah
0: yeah and and how, how important is your musical family to you still as you were touring with Ulali and, and making, uh, making these families with other musicians? I mean, are you still, uh, do you still stay in touch with a, a lot of these people and, and make music with them?
1: Well, you know, since I moved so far, you know, and, and Yulali wasn't active for a long time. We just did one concert together recently
0: mm.
1: after 15 years. Wow. So um, that was in New Mexico for Indian market. But, um, you know, of course, social media is where you get to see and speak to all these people, you know, the first person that pops up in my mind, of course, is Keith Sokola. And we were so close to him. And then there's John Trudell. And all of his guys, and so we were very close to them. We toured with them. That's how we knew these people. We were always um, uh, joined and, and toured or did festivals and concerts. So we all got to know each other in that way. Um, and yeah, so we still keep in touch. You know, there's a lot of people. As Jula Kappa, we just like saw him and his family. Um, You know, it's like it grew and and then other genres came into it, so like even comedy, so it was like Charlie Hill and, um, you know, and actors and actresses, so all of it, and then the arts, Um, all of us, we were all. A part of each other. Yeah, we, I mean, sometimes we keep in touch, and there's a lot of young young people, and a lot of our people have passed away. You know, they're gone. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. And now, at, at what point did you, I mean, when did you, La Lee, I, I guess you guys are, still do stuff sometimes, but when did that become the secondary project to Pouda Faye's solo stuff?
1: Like two thousand four is when I started to break away, yeah, and um and then by two thousand six, I moved to Seattle because I quit U and I didn't have those gigs, and I was supposed to go on the road with Taj Mahal, hmm. and then he changed management, and then they they were like, "Who are you <laughs> so, oh no so, um yeah, so I was like, wow, I cleared my entire calendar just as Taj told me to. So it's not his fault. Those things happen. But I ended up moving to Seattle. I forgot what your question was, but um
0: just just when you when you started really pursuing your solo project.
1: Okay, so as soon as I got to Seattle like in it was two thousand five, like right after Christmas, I moved there. So then it became two thousand six. I right away met musicians, Danny Godinez and several others, and um, all of a sudden, this French label contacted me through a music maker, and the label was called Dixie Frog, mm. and so they they found me, and they said, we're looking for a native woman who plays blues, and they were like, oh, well, we've got that. so. <laughs> So then, before you knew it, I was over in France, and um, they re-released my first solo album I made on Music Maker, and they released it and called it uh, Tuscarora Nation Blues. For them, it was all about this image, and um, an image I didn't like. But that's their understanding, and that was their way of selling, you know, me as like the savas, the savas, and. Um, yeah. So I, I won, a, uh, that year for that album, 2006, I won a, a L'Académie Charles Cross, which is like an Oscar or a
0: Grammy in mm-hmm. France.
1: So I broke out in France and went everywhere, in Germany and other places. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: And when this was originally um, the Tuscarora Nation Blues album that was re-released, that was originally Follow Your Heart's Desire, correct? Right. Okay, and they they retitled it. Um, and then after you you won the award, and you're out on this French label. Did did you were you going and touring in these areas?
1: Yeah, I toured all over France and other places, Germany, Switzerland. You know, all the close countries there, and somewhat in England, and then Scotland and <clears throat> Italy. Yeah,
0: did, Spain. Did you take a band with you, or were you going solo?
1: First, it was just me alone. And then I was like, I can't do this alone. So I asked Danny Godinez, and he said yes. So the two of us toured for quite some time. And then um, <clears throat> then we brought in Farco Dosumov, who engineered a lot of my albums, who played with Danny. He was an amazing bass player. The two of them they were amazing. And um and then I found out recently that they asked Danny to stop playing for me. They never told me this. It's like they they sort of manipulated behind me thinking they knew what was best for me. And so then um and Danny told me he says I'm going to I I no longer want to come and play. And this was when uh, I opened a huge festival in Paris for um, Herbie Hancock. Mm. That was the last time Danny played with me. And he didn't bring all of his fantastic bells and whistles, his like loopers and all this. He's a brilliant musician. He's the one that taught me how to use a loop station. And that's how I, I perform now. So they made him keep that stuff at home and he showed up at the concert without his stuff. And I was like, what happened to where's the I'm like, for me, that was like my band, you know, and I personally, when I'm playing with other people, I want everyone to see I'm so badass because I've got these badass musicians here with me. So so, then then so I always make sure everyone gets a chance to take like anyway, they didn't like that. And so they clipped it. And then I had to find someone else. And so I found Carrie and Carrie I knew from way back.
0: Carrie Morin, and, who's who's been on the podcast a couple times. That's,
1: yes. <laughs> so he popped up on my MySpace thing and and so anyway, so he ended up touring with me and then we brought Pete. And um and then Pete uh and then And they clipped them the label clipped them and um and then they gave me musicians that were in france and but i'm going to tell you something i have never had any complaints about or didn't get along with um i've always had the best musicians to play with all of them they've all been amazing personalities and amazing at their craft yeah so it's been a really good experience for me, yeah,
0: um, yeah, except for good. when
1: they clip people, it's just like you know, and I'm not down with that
0: but anyway. and so you 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 were ended up just playing with uh musicians they hired for you in France after that
1: mm mm-hmm. they were amazing, yeah, And it's like um Stefan Notari, who played, he played like cans and all kinds of strings. He, that was our drum section, and I didn't have a bass player. I had a cello, mm. cello player.
0: That's neat. So it
1: was so beautiful. Yeah. And, um. Yeah.
0: And and I know we're not going in perfect chronological order here, but um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the lap guitar and how you got started um, with that.
1: Um, one year when we went to the Edmonton Folk Festival and sang, and those Canadian festivals, they they have this thing where they love to just mix all their um, musicians together on a stage, right? So next to me was uh, sitting Kelly Joe Phelps. And um, I don't know if you know him, but um, he is known for his amazing lap, lap yeah. steel, guitar yeah. playing. I love him. Love him, love him. And um, so he was a hero for me. And um, so he was playing, and it was like the, the energy just like went right all over me. And after that, I picked up, I went and bought two guitars. And I lifted the strings up on them one of them was a 12 string. Mm. So um, I started to play instantly. But you know, years ago, I remember like when I was 15 years old at one of the powwows, there was a Tuscarora chief named Leon Locklear, who I eventually got to know once I moved to North Carolina. Yeah, that's where he was from. He played a a dobro slide on his lap. And um, so I remember that sound from him, then when I sat down next to Kelly, I um, so that was when it began, um, and that was in the 90s, the late 90s. And then, then one day I decided I was just gonna. I moved away from my now ex-husband and went and got myself my own place in Chapel Hill, and I just started to play um, for like one month and learn all my songs on this lap steel guitar. And then I went to Music Maker and knocked on their door. I said, I want to make an album. And that's when it began <laughs> in 2004. And so I played for three months and made an album.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you you took all of your songs that you'd already written and just relearned them with a lap steel. Right. Wow. And I I didn't mean to say and just relearned them because that, that was quite a a task. Oh, no, that's imagine. true. It, yes. That's um, what
1: happened.
0: What were you Called using? Called autism. <laughs> <laughs> were you using one specific tuning?
1: Yes, the dad fad.
0: Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that that's very interesting uh to take your catalog of work and, and do it on a completely new inter- instrument. Um, did you change keys of any of your songs, or did you try to learn them just as is in adding uh adding an in, adding a new instrument?
1: I don't think we ever knew what key we sang in, yeah, so it didn't matter. Okay. <laughs> and the open <laughs> tuning um just worked for mm. everything I wrote.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah
1: yeah. It's more simple like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's there's a song I wanted to bring up called "Great Grandpa's Banjo," uh, and I know uh, Rhiannon Giddens uh, came in on on that with you and collaborated. How did, for, first off, what's the story behind that song, and um, how how did you get everything together to record it?
1: Um. Well, the story is about my, um, my grandmother's Oh, my God, my poor dog can't even get up and walk. It's so cold. And he came in. So um, that yeah, she's having a hard time. I think she was stuck outside all night. So um, it was about my grandmother's aunt, auntie. Yeah, Um, her name is Della Blackman. And so she was killed by the Ku Klux Klan. And um, it's a pretty common story. And she was very fair-skinned. Her father was really light-skinned, so she came out like that. So back in those days, you could pass for, you could go for. Those things were really important, um, which meant you could have a a better life. And so she ended up marrying someone who was white, and so she had to live by these rules, you know, it's like, okay, you're here, you're here now, don't you go over there. You, you stay like this. I said, don't you be bringing none of them people on over here. So it was more like that. And, um, and I guess, you know, I heard the story, my cousin told me, um, Eric, we had visited a lots down south. And so, uh, that whole album is a lot of it is about the stories of of home, and so she was um, she was killed. She was chopped up in pieces. Oh, and um, yeah, man. So that's hate to its umth degree. So that's what that story is about. That song, and it's a common story. A lot of that happened, and. Her sisters were Indian and black. She was Indian and white. So she was different than, than her sisters, but they all had the same mother. And that, um, that uh, for, our, for our family and our people, that's, that's who you are. That is your lifeline. That is your umbilical. That is your, that's who you're connected to. That's who you, that's the womb you came from. I try and stretch that out also in, in all those stories. And, um, yeah. That's what like when you said, Is there anything that you kept that's part of your culture? It would be that, mm-hmm. you know, and so like, even when my grandmother's daughters got married, a lot of them ended up living in our house, in grandma's house, that's an old tradition. And um, so things like that. But um,
0: all right, I don't want to stray too far from your question. <laughs> well, well, no, it's 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 an interesting story. Well, a, a very uh, a very sad story, um, but that I I I enjoyed that song, and um, yeah, I just wanted to wanted to hear some more about it. Um, and then, how did you end up uh, collaborating with Rhiannon Giddens on the album version of that?
1: Well, because we we're all connected to Music Maker, and then. Um, and then, of course, you know, me being the person who is all about, I see everything as who's your people, and and that's what they say back home. Who's your people? Meaning, who's your families? What, what uh, area? What community? And you know, because everyone's related from way back. And so when I see Rhiannon, I'm like, all right, so who's your people? <laughs> And so she ties into the Okanichi community. And um, so she has uh, Okanichi lineage. And so do, I don't think I do, but my uncle Pete married into my family and he does. And so I know a lot of the Burnett's, but he himself is connected to some of my family from way back. So it's about, it's about that indigenous family tree. And um, so that's how I connected with Rhiannon, and, and we we have some similar gene pools going on in our lineage, and areas, communities, and rivers, and so forth. So when we just sat down to play, I swear it felt like like we were from another time. It was anyway so everything our sound is so connected and like always been it's like i've always played with her i've always sang with her from every century that we keep coming back it was like she's like for me she's like a sister yeah even if we don't talk to each other for a year or two years or whatever is i can feel her from so there's a lot of people like that, you know, you'll meet in your lifetime because they've always been a part of you in some way. And so that's how it was with Rihanna. Yeah. I love her by the way.
0: <laughs> I can tell that's that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful collaboration. Um, and, and now I, I jumping way back, I know Joni Mitchell's album, uh, blue was a big influence on you. Um, and and you were listening to her as a teenager there was a 50th anniversary album uh like a tribute and you got to do the flight tonight yeah um how did that come about um um
1: i don't remember how that came about an email popped up in my mail <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, And the
1: next thing you know, I was like, I was asked to, you know, I was just like, yay. So um, I don't remember how it, it happened, but it did. I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. I love her very much. And uh, it was Irene Cara, you know, the singer from Fame. And yeah. I grew up with her in school. She's the one that turned me on to, to um,
0: Joni. Did that happen backstage at the Broadway plays and and stuff yes. like that?
1: Yeah. You know some of my history. Yes, that happened at the um, the Uris Theater, and uh, we were in a show called Via Galactica, and it was really originally called Up, but we couldn't be Up Uris, you know, up <laughs> <laughs> so they changed the yeah. name to Via Galactica, and the star of the show was Raul Julia. So um, we hung out with Raul Julia. We were 13 years old. And so that's where I I learned about Joni Mitchell. And um, so we played it on a little, one of those old-timey phonograph record players. Yeah.
0: That must That must have been an honor then to sort of come full circle and get to... Um, record one of her songs. Yeah,
1: I loved her. And my best friend was Leslie Hawkins. She's now Leslie Barnard. And we used to sing all her songs. And so we would put her on, and then one of us would do a second harmony, and the other one would do the third. So we were constantly uh, harmonizing to Joni Mitchell. And,
0: yeah. Mm. So what's next for you i you know you're uh you're up north way north um you're a couple days days drive or flight away from um from the next gig or the next tour and i know we've all been uh forced home for the last couple of years for the most part what's what's uh, your plan over the next few years
1: well there's a couple things i really want to do of projects that I would like, and first of all, I'd like to learn better how to record at home because, yeah, <laughs> which I learned to successfully do somewhat. I mean, I was able to even send an audio um, for the Montreal uh, Philharmonic, and wow. that uh, one of my songs. Um, my people my land i redid it on my lap steel guitar so i'm learning how to record and so that is something i really want to do like really know how to do it and do it with visual i want to make um videos and um and even uh so the two type of albums i want is one absolutely crazy funky funk funk album i want that because that's a real serious part of me and then the second one is i want to do a tribal canoe album with so many nations and and having to do with their rivers connecting it with rivers and ocean and um canoe songs with with communities, people that are are really go out on the water and sing. Yeah. So and that will also tie in my, um, my father's nation. He's Taino. So I want to really I'm, I'm trying to get into um, knowing and and contributing and learning about my father's people in the caribbean so i just think everything if you want to know about um a lot about uh, indigenous peoples in the coastals everywhere you need to know about their canoe culture and their their highways which are also their bloodlines and so forth and there's so much history and stories that that can be told and through the music and the sound of the, the canoeing. And uh, so that's my, so those are two projects mm-hmm. that I want to pull off in the next two
0: years. Wow. The dreams, some, big dreams, like, great projects. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with me. Um, and if you wouldn't mind to stay on the line for just a moment, but, uh, in front of our audience, thank you so much. And, um, Looking forward to catching these new projects. Thank you very much. That's my conversation with Puda Fe. Um, I want to spell a couple things for you so you can look up the music in all the right spots. So Puda Faye is spelled P-U-R-A space F-E and Lali is U-L-A-L-I. Um, so you can go online and check out um, her music and her, and her acapella group's music, She's just filled with lots of stories. Uh, has done a whole lot of things in her career, and uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful getting to chat. Um, if you if you have a quick second, and you want to support the podcast, give it a five star rating and review. It just takes a couple seconds and really helps out a lot. And you can do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast um, podcasts, excuse me. Um, if you'd like to help out in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy S Y D O W. Um, for as little as $3 a month, you can get some early and exclusive content. Um, and, uh, it also just helps out a lot. Each and every contribution is greatly appreciated. That's all for this week. I, uh, I hope y'all have a great week and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <music>